Well, good morning, New Life Church. Blessing to be with you this morning. If you turn to Exodus chapter 20, we're continuing our study of the Ten Commandments this morning, and we'll be considering the, the Sixth Commandment. And this week, as I was talking with, with David, um, he made an interesting observation about this Sixth Commandment. He, he said that most people are, are going to come to church and switch off this morning because they think that this commandment does not apply to them. How many people killed somebody this week? Anybody? Um, well, if there's one of these commandments, you know, he was saying, if there's at least one of these commandments I've kept, it's this one. Surely, surely this doesn't apply to me. Um, but I don't mean to burst your bubble this morning. Um, but if this is how you are responding this morning, then you are in for a surprise. Uh, this was the same way that the rich young ruler responded when confronted by the law. He said, hey, look, I'm... I'm not some lousy sinner, you know. I've kept the commandments. Um, and I challenge you this week, when you speak to your unbelieving friends, ask them if they have kept the law. And I'm pretty sure the first thing they're going to say is, I haven't murdered anybody. Or they may say, I haven't robbed a bank. But more than often they'll say, I haven't murdered anybody. And it's this command which they, they use to give evidence that they are not sinners. And very few of us have actually murdered anybody, and we feel safe to say that that this is not applicable to us. But let me remind you in James, he says in chapter 2, verse 10, For whoever shall keep the the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. But like most commandments, the implications of this commandment are much greater than the simple act, the simple physical act of taking somebody's life. And those implications do in fact make sinners out of all of us. So let's read this morning, Exodus chapter 20. We'll read from verse 1 to verse 13. (coughs) And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. Father, as we come to this passage this morning, we pray for your help. We pray that the Spirit of God would open our eyes, 
Lord, you've told us that he is our teacher, and we pray this morning that he would teach us. We pray, Lord, if we come this morning with blind eyes, we ask that you would open our eyes. Help us to see how very applicable these, these truths are for us this morning. We do pray that you're quiet in our hearts as well this morning, Lord, and that you would help us to concentrate on you today. If there are distractions even that are taking our affections away from you this morning, we pray that you help us to deal with those. We pray that this morning we would not allow Satan to, to take away our time around your word together this morning. And that he would not get the glory, but in fact you would get the glory from our obedience and our response to the, the word of God today. So we ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My first point this morning is simply introduction. This week I did a lot of research on the issue of murder. It was quite a depressing week to see all these different statistics that were, were mentioned about murder. But let me give you a few of these um, statistics to give you a bit of a platform, a bit of a foundation as to where we will be going this morning. So according to The Guardian, which is a local newspaper in South Africa, an average of 52.1 people are murdered every day. In 2017, the South African Police Services recorded a total of 19,016 murders, which was 1,100 more than the previous year. In the U.S., in 2017, a total of 17,250 people were reported killed during that year, with the number increasing by about 8.6% in comparison to 2016. And most recently, a 56-year-old from Phoenix, Arizona, killed himself after killing as many as six people over five days. You may have heard about that in the newspaper, including a man and woman whose bodies were found just this Monday morning. In the Philippines, a total of 8,239 murders were recorded between January and November 2017. In Mexico, 23,101 murder investigations were opened in 2017. That excludes the, the, the murders that nobody knows about. But reports say it was the deadliest year since records began in 1997. El Salvador is one of the top five countries with the highest murder crime rate in the world, with an average of 41.2 people out of 100,000 being killed during 2017. Honduras, the Central American country, is the number one country with the highest murder rate in the world, an average of 90.4 out of 100,000 people were murdered in 2017. One survey report published an estimated figure of 385,000 people that were killed in homicides across the world during 2017. Let me repeat that. 385,000 people murdered in homicide-related incidents in the world in 2017. Another depressing website I went to records the deaths um, for the year in 2018 as a live site as the deaths occur. And these 
These rates also include the abortion statistic, the suicide statistic, the homicides, and the murder by gun. So from January the 1st, this year, 2018, till today, the abortion toll has been 468,001 across the world to date. Suicide since January the 1st, this year, has been 18,331. The homicides across the world, 7,200 since the beginning of January. And murder by gun, 4,926. These are very bleak statistics, very relevant statistics. Murder affects everybody in some way or another. It's a very serious problem in our world today, and it's getting worse all the time. But in Exodus chapter 20, God gave the Ten Commandments, and in verse 13, we just read, the Lord says, Thou shalt not kill. But Scripture has a lot more to say about murder than just that. In fact, if we go back even in the book of Genesis, chapter 9, verse 6, we find this statement. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. In Genesis chapter 9, here capital punishment is being instituted as a penalty for murder. And the reason is given in the same, ver- in the, in the same verse. Look there in Genesis 9 verse 6. For in the image of God made he man. So to take the life of a human being is to assault the image of God he created in man. And that brings about a serious penalty, the most serious. And so Genesis 9 authorizes capital punishment for those who shed blood because man is made in the image of God. Look at my second point this morning. What the command forbids. There in verse 13, if you have a King James Version, verse 13 will read, Thou shalt not kill. Whereas the ESV says, Thou shalt not murder. There's been a bit of confusion about that word over, over the years. The word kill means murder. This is the unlawful, premeditated killing of one human being by another. That is the definition of murder. But many people, on the basis of the, the King James translation, say that this is a prohibition against killing of any kind. They take their cue from the meaning of the word kill. And they oppose all forms of war. They oppose capital punishment. Or even of taking a life in self-defense. And some take it even to the extreme saying that we're not to kill even animals based on the translation kill. But if that was the case, then the Bible obviously contradicts itself because there are many cases in which God commands actions that involve killing. Just before the people of Israel entered the promised land, for example, God commanded the Israelites that they go to war against the peoples of that land. If you have a Bible, turn to Deuteronomy. Turn back, turn to Deuteronomy, chapter 20. Verse 16, it says, But of the cities of these peoples which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. 
but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. Remember the rebellious incident of the golden calf. Moses had gathered the the Levites together at the foot of Mount Sinai, and he said to them in Exodus chapter 32, he said to them in verse 27, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp. And let every man kill his brother, every man kill his companion, and every man kill his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. It was God himself who spoke to Noah and his descendants when they left the ark. Remember in Genesis chapter 9, he said, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even the green herbs. And he gave the instruction through Moses to slay bulls and goats and sheep as different sacrifices in the the temple. Even in Acts chapter 10, verse 13, he gave the apostle Peter, he gave him a, a vision. He gave him a vision, and in this vision, he gave him a command. He showed him a variety of four-footed animals of the earth. It was almost a tablecloth with these animals on top of it, wild beasts, creeping things, birds. And he said to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. So how do we understand this? Is God contradicting himself in giving the commandment against killing? Of course not. No, not at all. The Hebrew word that is used in this commandment is not the common general word for kill, but the one that is better translated, you shall not murder. And that's why we have updated versions of the Bible. This specific Hebrew word is related to the one that means to shatter or break in pieces. That is the the, the word for for kill there in verse 13. It, It refers to premeditated manslaughter or assassination of a, of a personal enemy in a vengeful or a, or a hateful way. It's not the word used, however, to describe the killing of animals for food. It's totally different. I think an example of what this command is talking about is found in Exodus chapter 21. Turn there with me, if you would. And it's interesting, this example is right after the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 21, in verse 12 and verse 13. There, after having given the Ten Commandments, God elaborates on the details. He gives specifics. And He says, Whoever, in verse 12, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. So God is here making a distinction between intentional killing and accidental killing. And he is here promising to, prov- to provide a place for the innocent man to flee to from the, the avenger. So you've got premeditated killing and then you have manslaughter, two different things. And elsewhere, God gave this example in Deuteronomy chapter 19. You can turn there with me. Deuteronomy 19, verse 4. This is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there 
may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle, and it strikes his neighbor so that he dies. It's an accident. He may flee to one of these cities and live. In such a case would be accidental homicide. And the man is not to be considered guilty of murder as described here in Exodus chapter 20. But Exodus 21 verse 14 goes on further with more details. Look there with me. Exodus 21 verse 14. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, another way to translate it is treachery. So if he willfully attacks to kill by by treachery or cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. This is premeditated murder. Killing by treachery, planning, plotting. Killing in the heat of passion is also intended by this command. In Exodus 21, look at verse 18. Look at verse 18 and 19. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly killed. So we need to be clear on what this command is prohibiting. It would be a misrepresentation and and a misapplication and a misinterpretation of this command to see it as as a blanket prohibition, a blanket ban against the killing of all kind. That is not what the command is teaching. It does not speak of the killing of an enemy in military combat, nor does it prohibit the state from executing murderers. Nor does it prohibit the killing of animals for food, all of which are clearly permitted in in Scripture, in commands, in different places in the Bible. But strictly speaking, this commandment prohibits the taking of the life of another in the way we would ordinarily understand murder. One individual taking the life of another with a motive of revenge or envy or hatred or bigotry or jealousy, or rage, or malice. It prohibits one from arrogantly raising himself up against the image of God in another. I think we're so far removed from this definition of murder. We're so willing to be entertained by things that advocate murder, and revenge, and jealousy, and, and rage. Think about the movie shows that we watch so willing to be entertained by what God hates. Look at who the command addresses. Who the command addresses. In Exodus 20, verse 13, the commandment is simply that you shall not murder. It speaks directly to all of us here, every single one of us. It doesn't qualify that prohibition by specifying who exactly. It just says, you, all of us. 
In other words, it forbids the murder of any human being made in the image of God. And this includes babies in the womb, by the way. You shall not murder means that all human life at any stage of development or in any condition of viability is to be considered sacred, intrinsically sacred, and should never be taken on the basis of the will of another human being, premeditated. Now on that principle, another scary statistic, an estimated 43 million unborn human beings have been legally murdered in the U.S. over the past 30 years. 43 million babies. That principle, and many today advocate mercy killings, euthanasia, and they judge people who have a low quality of life and we don't need to keep them around, we don't need to support them any, any longer. And they're no longer considered fully, fully human and therefore worthy of death. And another way that this fact speaks to us in our modern times is with respect to suicide and the whole so-called death with dignity movement. I saw some horrific videos this week of people sitting in the lounge, singing Kumbaya together and then taking a pill and dying. Death with dignity. To take one's life by one's own hand or to do so through the aid of a doctor is just as much to raise your hand arrogantly against the image of God, against God Himself. This is sin defined by God, not by man, by God Himself. Now I recognize that some of us have been affected by even suicide. We have family members who have taken their lives, or friends. And please understand that I'm not saying these things with any desire to add more grief to an already tragic situation. But we must still affirm the sinfulness of such an act. And so because of this commandment and because of the world that we live in, we must affirm that all life is sacred. And all life belongs to God, even our own. And we must affirm that life is not in any case ours to take. And to commit suicide is to commit a very grievous sin. But it's not the unforgivable sin. Let me just say that clearly, okay? But it is a grievous sin nonetheless. And the commandment then is simply that you shall not murder. So this speaks directly to all of us this morning. But let me move on to the implications where we will spend most of our time this morning. If you know anything about the Bible, the Bible is full of murders. You know that murder was the very first human crime. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 8 to 11, turn there with me if you would. It says this, Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? 
The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Look at verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And so it is that from the first human crime, murder, all through the Bible to Revelation, murder is a biblical issue. It's a real issue. And if we study the Scripture, we know how God feels about it. It is forbidden. It is punishable by death. And we learn other things about murder in the Bible. For example, we learn that murder is a crime authored by the devil himself. John 8, 44 says the devil is a murderer. And murder is basically authored by Satan. We find something else about murder in, in Matthew chapter 15, for example. We find that murder is a manifestation of the, the evil that is in our hearts. Matthew fifteen nineteen says, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, theft, false witness, blasphemies. At the beginning of the sermon, I said that there would be some of you who would say that this command does not apply to you. And some of you may still be thinking this. But as we look at the New Testament teaching of murder, and as Jesus himself teaches on the subject, we start to look at the root, the very root of the sin. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, please, please do that. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at Jesus teaching this on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a famous message that Jesus preached on a hillside in Galilee. And from chapter 5 through to chapter 7, our Lord is addressing the multitudes along with the scribes and the Pharisees who were following Him around trying to find fault with Him. But here in particular, he refers to their approach to life and, of course, their twisted view of sin. They had a different standard which they had made up themselves. But look at chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. We read this this morning. But let's stop here with this verse. Jesus is saying, you know you believe that it's, that it's wrong to murder because if you do, you're in danger of judgment. Remember, he's speaking to the multitudes, including the Pharisees that were there. And at that point, the scribes and the Pharisees, they would have said, Amen, yes, Amen, we agree with you. We're against murder. We have been taught by our ancient traditions. We have been taught by them of old by the rabbinical traditions that murder is an evil thing. They would have agreed. In fact, the thought that they did not murder is the key. L listen to this. The idea that they did not commit murder was one way in which they convinced themselves that they were righteous. Similar to what perhaps you did this morning by saying that you're not a murderer. We would not murder. We would never murder anybody. So we are righteous. That's a logical conclusion. We've kept the law. Thou shalt not kill. We wouldn't murder anybody. We're righteous. And they justified themselves because they hadn't physically killed somebody. 
And if we say to ourselves, why that terrible breed of humanity, they're a different kind of person than I am. Those people belong in jail. I'm not that type of person. I'm not living in a jail. I haven't murdered. I wouldn't hurt anybody. Well, we would identify with the Pharisees at this point. I'm sure all of us would. But this is precisely where Jesus wants to address them and he wants to expose them as well. Back to verse 20. Look there. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, they said, If we don't murder, we're righteous. But Jesus says, Your righteousness has to exceed that. Not murdering is not enough. Just because you didn't murder, that's not enough to make you righteous. It must exceed that. And then he proceeds from verse 21 to verse 48, and he gives six illustrations of how our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's not saying that we must become a Pharisee, but he's saying that we must be more righteous than they were externally. And this here, in verse 21, is only the first illustration. It's only the first one he gives. And Jesus gives them a teaching here about murder that's, that's literally shocking. It's devastating to them. And what Jesus is, is going to say is so dramatic, it shatters all of their comfortable categories, everything that they have rested upon. Because they had convinced themselves, because they didn't kill anybody, that they were right with God, they were holy. And Jesus blows this concept away. I read a quote this morning, uh, this week, by G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite Christian authors. And he said, No man's really any good till he knows how bad he is, or might be, till he's squeezed out of his soul the last drop of the oil of the Pharisees. And this is the problem. This is what the Ten Commandments are designed to do, to expose our sin, so that we wouldn't be hypocrites. Not so that we can follow them and say self-righteously that we are not sinners. We, have this, we all have this oil of the Pharisees that needs to be squeezed out if we are to understand grace, if we are to understand the gospel. Notice again in verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old. Now Jesus here is reminding them of their um, Jewish traditions, of their rabbinical teachings. He's not referring to the law of Moses. He's not referring necessarily to the word of God. Them of old were the rabbis. And this was a common formula referring to their, their past rabbinical teachings. And this is commonly called the, the Talmud. The Talmud. It's not part of the Scriptures. It's commentaries that are added to the Scriptures. And one of the searches we did on Google this week says this about the Talmud. The word Talmud is a Hebrew word meaning learning instruction. And the Talmud is the primary text of mainstream Judaism. It is the primary text. That's their definition of the Talmud. Our primary text is here, folks. This is our primary text. But the Talmud had replaced their 
scriptures, had, had replaced the very word of God. And that's why these Pharisees were, were hypocrites. That's why they were known as people who were religious on the outside, but on the inside, they were rotting corpses. Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, your religious system, your system, your traditional system, says you are not to kill. But the issue is not just murder. Look at verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus is simply saying the issue is not murder alone. There are more issues. There's anger he's addressing here. There's hatred that's in their heart which he is addressing here. He's saying you cannot justify yourself because you don't kill. Because if there's hatred in your heart, you are the same as a murderer. He's addressing the root issue, the root problem. We do this all the time, don't we? We say, oh, you know the, the category of people that murder? I would never do that. I would never do that. Yet sometimes we are so angry, so angry on the inside with somebody. We mock them and we curse people. We may feel bitterness towards people and we nurse grudges towards people. We're not willing to be reconciled with people. And our Lord Jesus is saying, that is the same. That is the same as murder. Because God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. And so when He says to them in verse 22, I say unto you, He's sweeping aside all their rabbinical teachings. I am saying this. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, I am saying this. He's confronting them. He's putting the emphasis where the emphasis belongs. He's stripping them of their self-righteous hypocrisy. And he's asking the question, who is a murderer? I'll tell you who a murderer is. Anybody who is angry with his body, anybody else, you're a murderer. doesn't get more straightforward than that. It's pretty devastating, isn't it? kind of strips our Phariseeism bare. Our hypocrisy, it takes it away. Anger is murder's root. Anger is murder's root. I recently heard a preacher say that the only difference, <coughs> listen to this, the only difference between murder and anger is opportunity. I'll say that again. The only difference between murder and anger is opportunity. Think about that for a moment. The only difference between you and the murderer locked up in the prison is opportunity. 
And that is what our Lord is saying here. I think that's a very accurate statement. Anger and murder merit equal punishment. That's what Jesus is saying. And in verse 22, he is saying, You're in danger of the judgment. You're in danger of the council. You're in danger of hell fire. What's our Lord doing here? It's important we understand this. Our Lord is saying that what's going on in the inside of you is what God judges. What's happening on the inside is more important to Him. You may hate more than a murderer hates. Consider that for a moment. You just don't have the opportunity to kill somebody. And even a less violent hatred than that, even anger with a brother to any degree, is the same in God's eyes as as murder. So the Lord is asking, who is a murderer? And the answer is, all of us. All of us are murderers. If you cannot agree with that, then you are calling God a liar. Jesus strips us stark naked of this self-righteousness. Jesus is saying, if you don't do the killing, if your heart is full of anger and you hate, you're a murderer. Look at verse 23 and verse 24. Now he's taking it even more personally to the area of worship. And I want you to see what he says as we conclude this message. Matthew 5, 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Of course, worship was a major issue with the scribes and the Pharisees, all the Jews. Their whole life was revolved around the worship of Yahweh. And they were in the temple all the time doing their thing, worshiping God, making sacrifices, carrying out the law. But our Lord here condemns that ritualistic worship. He says to them, if you bring your gift to the altar and you come here for worship and then you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before you go and worship. He's talking about reconciliation. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and make your offering and then come and worship. In other words, reconciliation comes before worship. What a powerful point. And I hope you get this. Now, Every Jew understood this scene. The Jews knew the standard of, of worship. They understood the idea of a sacrifice. It was very obvious for them. They saw that all the time. If a man committed sin... If there was a breach between him and God, their relationship was disturbed. The only way they could reconcile that was through a sacrifice, an offering. There was blood involved. There was a cost involved. There had to be reconciliation. There had to be a contrite and and a broken heart. A man was to confess his sin. And the man was to to manifest repentance. Repentance. He was to bring an animal as a sacrifice. The animal wasn't the issue. The attitude was the issue. You see, obedience in the heart is better than sacrifice. You've heard that before. Obedience is better than sacrifice. The sacrifices were merely an outward symbol of repentance 
that had already taken place in the heart. And so when the, that breach came, and the man repented in sorrow, and he asked for forgiveness, and set things right with God, then and only then could he bring a sacrifice. And the picture is very vivid here. He says, if you Pharisees and you scribes and you, you religious people, you come in with all this worship, paraphernalia, I don't want any of it. Go away until you get it right with your brother or sister. That's what the Lord's saying here. And if we come to New Life Church to worship the Lord on a Friday, and you're angry with your brother or your sister, you're wasting your time. It's as simple as that. If you think you can take Holy Communion, partake of the Lord's blood and partake of the, the Lord's body as a symbol of the Gospel, and you have not gotten right with your brother or sister, and you are living in sin, you're wasting your time. If you come here to sing this morning, and worship God this morning, and to honor Him, and you have sin in your life, and you have anger in your heart, you are wasting your time. God wants repentance. He wants reconciliation. He wants contrition. God doesn't want anything to do with hypocritical worship. And I believe there are families that come where there is animosity even from the kids towards the parents or the parents towards the kids. And God isn't interested in that type of worship. I believe that there are times when we come to church and there, are, there is feeling against somebody else in the fellowship or even a neighbor in the street or somebody in your work and there is bitterness God doesn't want anything to do with that. Perhaps there's a fellow Christian that we don't particularly care for. Or something has happened and your relationship is unresolved. And there is bitterness because you have been unwilling to forgive. And you want to come worship God. You're wasting your time. God doesn't want that type of worship. The Lord is saying, go away. Jesus is saying, go and get it right first. And then come and worship. Psalm 66, verse 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifice? As in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken is better than the fat of rams. So this morning, let me finish with asking you a couple of questions. First question, who is a murderer? Have you ever been angry? Have you ever called anybody a name? Maybe your wife or your husband or your children? Maybe even under your breath, you've insulted them or cursed them. Have you ever come to church to worship while you had bitterness in your heart? And you're the same as the murderer. Because you allowed conflict. You allowed bitterness. You allowed hatred. You allowed anger to enter into your heart. You're no different to a murderer. 
You are a murderer. Don't worry, I've been preaching this sermon to myself the whole week, okay? I point one finger to you, there are four pointing back, okay? Let me ask a second question. Who deserves death and hell? We all do. I do. We're all guilty of murder. The Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is what? Death. We've all been angry. We've all said malicious things. We've all thought a curse or said a curse. We've all been unreconciled to a brother or sister. We've all done that. And what are we going to do? And that is exactly what Jesus is trying to get to. That's exactly where the Lord is trying to meet these Pharisees. Stripping them of all their, of all their rituals, of all their religiosity. Their hearts. What are they going to do? He wants to drive them to the fact that they cannot be righteous on their own. Which should drive them to their knees at the foot of the cross. To accept the imputed righteousness that only Jesus can give. That only Jesus can give. Everything that he says here is to drive them to that place of desperation, to that place of inadequacy, to that place of total frustration. I am unworthy, Lord. There is nothing that I can do. I am a murderer. I agree. What can I do? You can come to Jesus. He's the one who died our death. He's the one who was punished for our crimes. He's the one who took our sins that we deserved. He entered our hell that we might have His righteousness. We all deserve death. We all deserve hell. We're all murderers. All the Pharisees were, the scribes were, and everyone else's. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why Jesus died our death. That's why He suffered our our hell. And He offered us the gift of His own righteousness. And that's the meaning of the gospel right there. And by the way, this is just one crime that we've committed. This is just one crime that we've committed. There are many more. So we are brought again to the fact that by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. But the righteousness that we desperately need comes as a gift from God. And Paul calls it the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us. Do you have that righteousness this morning? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. We thank you even more this morning for the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for sending him to this earth to live a perfect life so that he could die a perfect death and offer us this wonderful gift of salvation. This is indeed, Lord, the good news. that We, are no, we don't have to be trapped in these terrible sins. But Lord, we can be forgiven. We can be freed. We can be set free this morning from this bondage. 
I pray this morning, Lord, your Holy Spirit will do the work that needs to be done in our lives. I'm sure there are people here this morning who are still trying to be self-righteous. I pray, Lord, that you would take the seed and let it grow, Lord, this morning. Help them to see that they, they, are, they are condemning their sins unless they fall on their knees and call upon the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. I pray you do that work in the lives of everybody here this morning, Lord. Lord, we would make right with those people, Lord, that we have been angry towards. That we would be reconciled with them so that we can worship you together. That we can worship you as you deserve to be worshipped, Lord. Not as hypocrites, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to, to weed out this terrible trait of hypocrisy, Lord, that that we all are guilty of this morning, and that we would turn to the righteousness of Christ, for you are worthy of all of our worship, and we praise you today. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.